Good morning. Welcome to Rockwall Press, and happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers. I hope you feel loved and celebrated today. But I also know that for some, Mother's Day can be bittersweet. Perhaps as the years have gone on, Mother's Day has gotten more complex for you. And it can be a reminder of what was or what could have been. And so if that's you this morning, you're not forgotten of either. And I pray that you would know the comfort and love that Christ has for you. And if you're a guest with us this morning, we are really glad to have you. Maybe you're, uh, it's your first time, maybe you're still new here. Uh, you find us in the middle of a little bit of a different type of sermon series. At the beginning of the year, uh, we started a series where we are going to take the entire year to preach through the entire Bible. Uh, Mark wanted to spend a year in the Song of Solomon, and I said, no, we, uh, let's just do the whole Bible. But we're doing that because we... <laughs> uh, it's not true. Uh, we're doing that because we want to see, uh, we want to see what God is doing. God is the main character. He's the main character of the story. He's the main character of our lives. And so how can we understand and know him? And today we come to the most action-packed, fast-paced chapter in the entire Bible in Exodus 14. It's the crossing of the Red Sea. And in the crossing of the Red Sea, we witness the salvation event of the Old Testament. It's the moment where God rose up against his enemies and completed his utter decimation of Pharaoh. And he saved his people and he revealed his power on a scale so dramatic that it bends the imagination. But let's not get so familiar with this story that we forget that it actually challenges us as Christians. And it asks us some really hard questions. Because all throughout the Exodus story, there's a question that hangs over the whole thing. It's the question we saw at the beginning when Moses comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks his question, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Who is he? And when we look at this Exodus story, we are asked the same question. Who is this God to you? And it asks us to consider where we are at. Who is this God to you? When you heard this story read to you, does it sound like a God that can be afforded to be taken lightly? Does it sound like a God who's content being disregarded and overlooked? Has your life been more about trying to bring this God more and more into your life? Or do you find yourself in a place where it's really been more about pushing him out? Picking and choosing when his voice is relevant and needed and necessary. Who is this God to you? And the story draws you deeper into a life of faith. I don't want you to just be here this morning, a part of this massive humanity called Rockwell Press. I want you to hold something in your heart today that God is drawing you near. God is coming near to you. And in this story, 
He's telling you who you are. And he's telling you who he is to you. But it's also a warning to us that this God is not to be taken lightly. Because that's exactly what Pharaoh did from the very beginning. Who is Yahweh? That I should obey his voice. And our passage ended last week with Pharaoh telling Moses to go. We had the Passover last week, and after the tenth and final plague with the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh was brought to his lowest point yet. If you remember, every house in Egypt had lost someone. That includes Pharaoh. And finally, he tells Moses, just go. Leave us at once, all of you, and be gone from us. But then he says, pray that I would be blessed. It's a bold statement and a bold request. Because obviously we know Pharaoh changed his mind. Just a few verses later, he decides to rally up his army once he, decide, once he realizes the route that Israel has taken. And so he rallies his army to chase down the Israelites. Because now he's coming for vengeance. And after all that God had done, Pharaoh still did not take this God seriously. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Now, Let's hit the pause button for a second and just consider a really basic question. Why does the exodus even happen in the first place? Like, why does God tell his story this way? Because if you think about it, if God's desire was to ultimately bring his people to the promised land, then the exodus certainly seems like the long way around. Like, why didn't he just have Jacob and the brothers and Joseph come back to the promised land after the famine was over 400 years before? Why did he allow Israel to fall into slavery for centuries under the power of Pharaoh? Why is this how God tells his story of redemption? Well, now we're getting into the deep end. And to find those answers, we have to see this story in light of the book of Genesis and what we've already covered. We have to see it in light of God's promises that he's already made. And so that first connection is with Genesis 50 at the death of Joseph, when Joseph said to Israel, God is going to visit you, and when he does, I want you to take my bones with you to the promised land. And so when Pharaoh told Moses to go, what does Moses do? Well, he leaves, and the first thing he does is he goes and he robs a tomb. Why? Because when that tomb was emptied, it told Israel that it was time to go, that God had come after all this time, and he was bringing them home. And it says in verse 19 that Moses carried the bones of Joseph with him. And this exodus is the fulfillment of Joseph's faith and hope that God would keep his promises, and God would bring his people home. And the second connection takes us back a little bit further to Genesis 15, When God put Abraham into that deep and mysterious sleep and made those covenant promises to him, and God was the only one who passed through those piles. And when he did, he said something to Moses or to Abraham. He said, Your offspring will sojourn in a land that's not their own, and they will be slaves there and afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment upon that nation. 
and I will bring out your offspring with great possessions. This exodus is happening because God had made promises and he was keeping them. And the third point of connection with Genesis, we have to go back even further to Genesis 11. Do you remember Babel? When all mankind gathered together and they said, let us make a name for ourselves and build a tower up to the heavens. Babel was mankind being unified in their pursuits of the glory that they were made for apart from God. They were grasping at power and immortality on their own terms and living by their own story. And so they built a city. At the center of that city, they built a tower, a ziggurat, a place of worship where idolatry and false gods produced a false religion that promoted lies that formed the framework for how they understood their existence in their world. Because that's what religion does. It makes claims about the divine and about mankind's origins, his purpose, his meaning, and his value, and his worth. And all of that false religion comes down and flowed down to the masses of that city and became the heartbeat of that great city. It shaped their culture, and it built their economy devoted to building this empire. It was a city of man, a counterfeit to the city of God. At Babel, sin and rebellion were institutionalized against God. So what did God do? He confused their language to put limits and capacities on mankind's ability to be unified in doing evil. And thus, the the nations were born. But if you remember, we said that each of those groups went their own way, yet they still took the spirit of Babel with them. Each of them still took the desire for their own empire, and it was buried deep in their hearts. And so why the exodus? Well, because at Babel, God told us that he would tell his story of redemption through the powers and nations of the earth. Because the nations aren't neutral. They all offer their own deities, whether it's Kali, Shiva, or power, or money. The nations are not neutral. They all have their own stories of origins, claims about the purpose of humanity. Each of them offer their own visions of utopia. And God will tell his story through the nations. That's why Israel comes into direct contact with every empire of the ancient world. And in the Exodus, God rises up against Egypt. Why? Because Egypt is just Babel 2.0. They enslaved God's people based on their own lies to build their own empire, to strengthen their own economy, and to increase their power on the earth. And so this helps us make sense of all these plagues, if you think about it. Because with each of these plagues, God is tearing down their empire brick by brick. Because have you ever thought about what these plagues would have done? They are brutal. Because God is decimating their city, their economy, and their gods. He destroys them economically by killing their livestock, their cows, their horses, so that they couldn't farm or sell or eat. And then if there were any livestock left, they were killed off whenever God sent hail of fire that 
killed them all and their trees and their plants and their gardens, and God destroys the beauty of their city. He destroyed their income by ruining their crops so that Egypt looked like a wasteland. And then whatever crops happened to survive all that, he destroyed when he sent a plague of locusts to consume it all. And they have no food and no source of income. On top of that, he made the Egyptians so miserable with frogs in their beds and in their cabinets, gnats in every corner of their house, flies so thick they could hardly breathe and boils so bad they couldn't get out of bed. And by the end of the plagues, they were so miserable that when Israel was leaving the city, the Egyptians gave them all of their gold and wealth just to get them out of town. Because God bankrupted their economy and he destroyed their city. But he also destroyed their strength by killing their firstborn. Those who would inherit the empire and be the pride of the nation. He killed their army at the Red Sea and he broke the back of their power and might. But underlying all of this, God is destroying their theology. Because before the Passover, God told Moses that he will execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. All the gods in whose name all of this injustice was brought forth. Because if you look at the plagues, every single plague involved an arena over which an Egyptian god claimed to have all power and all authority. Wealth, crops, livestock, fertility, death. And with every one, Yahweh bankrupts their pantheon of gods, and he pulls the rug out from underneath all of their claims. And since Pharaoh was seen as an incarnation of all of those gods, since Pharaoh was the God-man when the Lord killed his firstborn son, he's communicating something very clear. This God, Yahweh, is the God-slayer. And he crushes their empire. These are not neat little tricks. These aren't just a wave of a magician's wand. God is bankrupting the empire from top to bottom and laying waste to all other claims of divinity, power, and purpose. This is the God of Genesis 1, the creator God, the God of the cosmos, revealing his power and his dominion over creation. And he's rising up in war to save his people. And here at the Red Sea, God issues his final blow. And when God led Israel out, he didn't take them the way that one would think. He didn't lead them around the sea. He led them directly towards the sea. It's because he's setting a trap. Not for Israel, but for Pharaoh. Pharaoh hears the route that they had taken, and so he knows that they can't escape. And so now he thinks that this is his opportunity. So he rallies up his army, readies his chariots, and he takes his war machine out to hunt down the Israelites. And yet, despite all that God had done, Pharaoh never took this God seriously. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? But God uses the pride of the arrogant to engineer their downfall. And when Israel got to the sea, they looked behind them, and they saw the army coming for them. Now they're trapped. 
between an army and an ocean. And they cry out to Moses and say, did you just bring us out here to die? Is that why you brought us here? It would have been better for us to be slaves in Egypt than for us to die out here. And then Moses rises up against the mass of the people as the chariots are chasing them down and the time is running out. He says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians you see here today, you will see no more forever. The Lord your God will fight for you and you have only to be silent. And at this point, night was setting. And that pillar of cloud that represented God's presence, it moved behind Israel so that the Egyptians couldn't get any closer as night fell. And then God tells Moses to stand on that shore, lift his staff over those waters, And when he does, something very familiar happens. It echoes Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. The Spirit of God descended and hovered over the face of the waters. And once again, God divided those waters and dry land appeared. And God says to Moses, why are the people still crying out to me? (laughs) He says, stop praying. Start running. I've opened up a way for you. Go. Run. Move forward. And so the people grab everything they can, babies in one hand, all their possessions in the other, and they run. And they descend hundreds of feet down to the bottom of the sea, walking on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and a wall of water on their left, as high and as far as they could see. Yeah, when the Egyptians follow after them, those waters already started to trickle back onto the dry ground because their chariots get stuck in the mud. They're unable to escape, and now they're trapped, and they're terrified, and on the other side of the sea, standing on the far shore with the whole host of Israel watching on, families huddled close together, adrenaline pumping their hearts out of their chest, God tells Moses to raise his staff over the waters once again. And when he does, those two walls of water, hundreds of feet high, come crashing down on the Egyptians. It's checkmate. And the creation language that's used in this story, it gives us a haunting picture of judgment. There's just no way around it. Because when the Egyptians rushed in, what happens? God removes his spirit from the waters. The dry land disappears. And they're buried in the waters of chaos and covered in darkness and cut off from the life of God. So what is judgment? Judgment's being uncreated. And being thrown back into chaos, cut off from the very life of God. And yet at the same time, this creation language that this story uses also gives us a beautiful picture of salvation and what's true of you. Because God parting these waters and bringing forth dry land means that this is an act of creation. 
He's doing a creative work. He's going to bring forth new life. Israel walks on this dry land as they pass through the chaos waters, as they pass through the place of death, and they're saved into a new life. This is an act of new creation because when they stand on the other side of the sea, the sun rises and a new day dawns, and they are now a different kind of people. They have now entered into a new kind of existence. The Exodus tells us that salvation is an act of new creation. Where an old life is over and a new life begins. So what does all this mean for us? This is a 3,500-year-old story. How do we apply this story to our lives all these years later in this modern world? What does it mean for us? Well, here's what we don't want to do with this story. We don't want to take what Moses says to Israel when he says, Fear not, stand firm, for the Lord your God will fight for you. We don't want to take that and then just settle for the low-hanging fruit that just reduces this story down to some simplistic, moralistic, prosperity gospel point about how when times get hard, just don't be afraid, be faithful, be still, and just trust that God will deliver you. It would be to simplify this story down to where we treat every hardship like it's our own personal Egypt. So that if you're just faithful enough and you're just still enough, then God will deliver you by doing some stealth ninja moves on all your problems. And so then we'd kind of platitude this story to death and we'd pretend like it can affect real life when we know real life is not that simple. And we could water this story down and just treat it like it's a pep talk for when we experience bad things and when life gets hard. And then I just kind of end this sermon by saying, you know, if you're going through a tough time today, don't be afraid, stand firm. But the Lord your God will deliver you and get you out of it. God delivered the Israelites, therefore, he will deliver you. And sure, it makes us feel good for a second. But it's not true. Because what if he doesn't? What if he doesn't remove those circumstances? What if he doesn't remove that hardship? We know that that interpretation and understanding can't bear the weight of real life. There has to be something more in this story for us. And that simply can't be the point of the, of the story because it misses the entire point of the story of what this exodus means. And really for three reasons. One, that interpretation and that application, it has nothing to do with Jesus. But secondly, it can't be the point of the story. Why? Because from here, God is going to lead Israel into hard times. <laughs> He's leading them to the desert, not paradise. He's going to lead them to a place where they are hungry and they will go thirsty and they will face hostility and they're going to be afraid. And so how can this story just simply be about God delivering his people from hard situations when that's exactly where we see God lead them? But thirdly, 
if that's how we apply this story, then do you know who that actually teaches us to be like? It teaches us how to be like Pharaoh. Pharaoh. Because all throughout the plagues, whenever bad things happened to him, there were multiple times where he would ask Moses to pray for him to be blessed. Moses, pray that I might be blessed. Even after the 10th plague, just before he mounts up his chariots and his army and marches to the Red Sea, he asked Moses when he sent him off, pray that I would be blessed. Pharaoh only comes to God whenever he felt like the life that he wanted for himself was slipping away from him. He only came to God to help, to help him hold on to his kingdom and maintain that life that he wanted to live. He only came to God to keep an old life. He didn't come to God to embrace a new life. And so if that's all that we get out of this story, and it just teaches us to be like Pharaoh, where we use God as this tool to get us out of every bad situation, where all God becomes is a means to holding on to the life and the circumstances and situations that we want for ourselves. And the truth is, the Exodus tells us that God has so much more for you than that. The Exodus is about letting go of an old life and stepping into a new one in light of what God has done for you. And that's something that Pharaoh was never willing to do. Because what Pharaoh should have done was say to Moses, where are you going? I will go with you. I will use my army to protect you. I will use my army to guard you to wherever this God would lead you. Just let me come and know this God because now I know who he is. And now I will obey his voice. But he doesn't. He only turned to God when bad things happened. But he never had any intention of knowing and serving this God. It's about holding on to that old life, not embracing a new one. And that's exactly what the Exodus is about. And it's so easy to be like Pharaoh. Where we do, we turn to, to God when life gets hard. If you follow Jesus for five minutes, we all fall into that trap and that rut where we come to him and we want his blessing, but there's not much desire to know him and to serve him. Why? Because we come to him because our desire is really to hold on to that life that we want for ourselves. And our lives can reflect that we don't take his voice very seriously. We want his blessing, but we don't want to give up life as, as we want it to be. I want to know God, but I don't want to give up my free time. I want to know God, but I don't really want to have to change. I want community, but I don't want to be vulnerable or have to trust anybody. I want to experience new life, but I don't ever want to suffer or sacrifice or be inconvenienced or give anything up or told what to do. It's so easy for our lives to echo the words of Pharaoh, who is Yahweh, that I should obey his voice. And the Exodus invites us into the deep end. The Exodus is not a paradigm for tough situations. 
It's a paradigm for our salvation, which means it points to Jesus. And so if we want to know what this story means for us, we have to find him. We have to find the one who left the promised land of heaven and came down to the Egypt of this world. The one who became a carpenter. That's really misleading because he's really a stonemason, a blue-collar bricklayer because he laid bricks too. He entered into this world as the true Israel, but also the true and better Moses. Did you know that Jesus and Moses actually had a conversation in the New Testament? Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples saw Jesus, and saw his face shining with the brilliance of the sun, and he was clothed in glory, they also see him talking with Moses and Elijah. And your Bible probably translates it and says that they were asking Jesus about his departure. But the real translation of that, of that, the literal translation, is that they were asking Jesus about his exodus. The exodus where he too came under the power of the Roman Empire. He was arrested and shackled like a slave where the Roman powers and all the leaders of Israel and Satan and all of his forces gathered together against him. But he opened not his mouth. Because God was setting a trap using the pride of the arrogant to engineer their downfall and to deliver the final blow to the final enemy. And on the cross, when Jesus gave up his spirit, what do you think he was doing? He was allowing the chaos waters of death to come crashing down upon him so that he was covered in those waters and he sank to the bottom and was buried in darkness and cut off from the life of God. But three days later, he arrived on that far shore, on the other side, and it meant that a new day dawned in creation, because the empire of Satan, sin, and death that lies in the backdrop of this world was defeated. So what's this mean for us? Well, what's true of Israel and their salvation at the Red Sea is even truer of us and our salvation in Jesus. Because when Israel stood on the far side of the sea with Pharaoh defeated, it meant they were liberated from him, yes. But here's the thing. They weren't free. They weren't free. It just meant that they had a new master now. They're still slaves. And now they have a new master. They weren't free to go and to live however they wanted and to do their own thing. No, they were bought and they were purchased and redeemed by the Lord their God. And crossing the Red Sea meant that they had passed from one form of existence into another, out of service to Pharaoh and into service of this new master, Yahweh, out of death and into life. Because what does God do after this? He takes them to Sinai where he teaches them what it means to serve him, to love him, to serve the purposes of his kingdom and to show them the way of life. This is where God will say to them, remember all that I did while you were in Egypt and how I brought you to myself because you are my treasured possession. Now you're mine. 
now you belong to me. And if that was true of Israel, how much truer of us? Your salvation in Christ is not just about getting our sins paid for, treating eternal life like that spiritual retirement plan. It doesn't mean that we can live however we want and negotiate the terms of this relationship or pick and choose when we obey his voice. No, it's about this Exodus story, letting go of an old life and embracing a new one. It's recognizing that you have passed from death into life. And your baptism tells that very story. Your baptism is what God gives to us to tell us that the exodus of Jesus Christ is yours. His victory was yours. You too have passed through the waters of death into new life. You too have passed from one type of existence into another. You too have been redeemed, bought, and purchased and are a treasured possession of your God who puts his name upon you in baptism and says, Mine. Because you have been liberated from your slavery to the empire of Satan, sin, and death, but it does not mean that you are free. It means you have a new master now, and you belong to him. And this is why the first thing the Heidelberg Catechism teaches our children is what is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Because I belong to him. And now I will live for him. It's the exodus that points forward and teaches us how to understand in such a deeper way our salvation in Christ. And it teaches us that hard lesson of sometimes that we so quickly forget that we have a new master now. At minimum, Christ is our new master. At minimum, Christ deserves our devotion, our worship, our obedience, and everything that we could possibly offer to him. Because the cross of Jesus means that you have been bought and paid for and redeemed by a new master, which means the only question we have left is, is he good? Is this master good to us? That's the million-dollar question. That's the million-dollar question when life gets hard. That's the million-dollar question when you face tragedy and difficulty and heartache. Is he good? But it's only when we understand that we are claimed and owned and belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only when we understand this Exodus story and what it means for us that now we are actually able to be opened up and find a new, deeper, richer comfort when life gets hard and trial and tribulations come. Then we are ready to experience and find a hope that can bear the weight of real life. Why? Because when Moses stood on that far shore, as the sun was rising on a new day, he sat down and he wrote a song in Exodus 15. And there's a beautiful line in that song where he says, The Lord has led us by his steadfast love. The Lord has led us by his steadfast love. That's the point of this story. 
That's the language of those who stand on the far shore. That's how we come to find that deeper, truer comfort when life gets hard. That's what frees us up from thinking that every hardship that comes our way and hardship will come. We don't have to treat those hardships as though it's every, every single one of them is just our own personal Egypt and we have to expect God to deliver us. It means that he already has. It means that we remember that we have already been delivered. Jesus Christ has already crushed Egypt. He's crushed the Pharaoh to whom we were devoted and enslaved. He crushed the empire of Satan, sin, and death. And you stand on the far shore. The victory is already won, and you belong to him. So why would he let you go? Why would he let you fall apart? Why would he lead you to your undoing? Why would he let you be crushed and drowned? Why would he give so much to have you for himself just to let you go? Because the cross tells you that you are his prized possession, bought and paid for. And what about this Exodus story would lead us to believe that there is anything in this world that has the power to pull you out of his hands? Now, the deep end of this faith is that in good and in bad, we know the victory is already won. And so the challenge becomes to recognize that we stand on that far shore in Jesus Christ. And whatever hardship comes, we trust that it's the Lord who's leading us there by his love. In pain and in sorrow and in trial and in tribulation, you belong to him. And you can trust that though that road is hard, he is in fact leading you to new life. So my beloved, who is Yahweh? Who is the Lord? Who is Jesus? That we should obey his voice for the glory of Christ and the life of the world. Let's pray.